This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike, brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. The Supreme Court is in the middle of its summer recess, but that doesn't mean there's no news related to the court. The justices continue to get emergency requests related to the COVID-19 pandemic. And one of the highest profile stories of the summer came, as it so often does, from Joan Biskupic of CNN. Biskupic obtained a, an exclusive interview with Justice Stephen Breyer, who's been the focus of extensive speculation about when and if he will step down to allow President Biden to name his successor. Breyer, who turned 83 on August 15th, told Biskupic that he has not yet decided when he will retire. Joining us to talk about that interview and more is Joan Biskupic, CNN legal analyst and the author of four Supreme Court biographies on Justices Sandra Day O'Connor, Antonin Scalia, Sonia Sotomayor, and Chief Justice John Roberts. Joan, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Amy. It's great to be here. And unlike our audience, I actually get to see you right now during Zoom. And it's so nice to just see a face these days, isn't it? It really is. It really is. We haven't been at the court uh, in a really long time. And it's it's not clear, I guess, when we're going to be back. I guess we'll know uh, eventually. Um, but speaking of seeing people, we haven't seen any of the justices, as I said, in over a year. So before we get to the substance of your interview, how did, how did Justice Breyer look? He looked healthy and energized. Uh, he was, you know, as you know, I went up to New Hampshire to see him and it's a beautiful setting up there, you know, uh, amid the, the white pines and uh, people much more relaxed in New Hampshire than they are down here in Washington, D.C., even when the court is not in session. Uh, he was wearing sandals and khaki shorts and uh, uh, a, a loose uh, uh, short sleeve shirt, you know, looking very casual. And I've always described him as a, a very youthful 80-something and now 83, as you say, uh, and he had uh, the, the usual spring in his step and uh, good chair. So he actually looked good. Uh, I'm like you. I've wondered about the health and uh, sanity and happiness of the other justices. And when we were in COVID uh, quarantines in uh, 2020, I especially wondered about how, you know, for example, Justice Ginsburg was doing. So you, for the ones who uh, have shakier health or questions, you you do wonder how they're holding up. But I have to say, Justice Breyer looked good. So speaking, yeah, speaking of health, he said that two factors would be at the forefront of his decision about when and whether to retire health and the court. And so we've got a pretty good idea of what he means by health. But what do you think he meant when he said the court? I think institutional regard for the court, as we heard him back in April when he gave his Harvard lecture, he spoke so much about public confidence in the court, uh, the legitimacy of the court. And I think he has in his mind what would be best for the court as an institution at this time, including at this very polarized political time. Is he, you know, kind of putting himself between a rock and a hard place. I mean, I, 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 there's this idea out there that he might not want to have stepped down after this past term 
because it would look like he was acting politically. There's a Democratic president. I was appointed by a Democratic president. Ergo, I'm going to step down now. But, you know, he saw what happened with Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who didn't step down during the Obama administration, even after people encouraged her to do that. You know, at some point, if he wants to step down and have a Democratic president replace him, like it's still going to be the same. And that's what other uh, justices appointed by Republican presidents. That's what Anthony Kennedy did. There was a Republican president. President Trump was inaugurated and then he stepped down. I think that's exactly right, Amy. And I think that, first of all, I uh, do not doubt that he would like to leave while a Democratic president is in office. He came in uh, in 1994 through Democrat President Bill Clinton's appointment. So I do believe he would leave. He will try to leave uh, while President Joe Biden is in office. Back in January, when the Georgia Senate seats went Democratic and suddenly we had this very slim Democratic majority in the Senate, I actually believed that Justice Breyer would be thinking of going sooner rather than later because suddenly there was this Democratic majority which would enable President Biden to to have greater flexibility and choice in a successor to Stephen Breyer. But what I discounted, and I know this is something that's in your mind too, is the new responsibility he has as the senior member of the left wing And uh, because of the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg last September, he has has more authority, more responsibility. So I think what's been going on, Amy, is that he's weighing many factors, his health, the institution of the court, but also sort of where he is after 27 years of um, serving as a justice, he suddenly has this different kind of authority and uh, wants to make use of it uh, frankly, probably for at least one more term and probably just for one more term, although he never said that to me outright. And I want to make that clear. That's just my um, my inference here. So he did talk about enjoying his new seniority. That is one thing that he, he did say he enjoyed it. And for our listeners who aren't as steeped in the the court's inner workings. Can you first explain exactly what that means, please? Sure, and and, and actually it's it's not as obvious to people. We all know that the the Chief Justice John Roberts, who is in the majority more often than not, has the power to assign in opinions. But uh, the the leader of the liberal wing, uh, uh, if if he or she happens to uh, command a majority can assign the opinion, or more often than not, uh, assign the dissent for that side and try to control the voice of the dissent for that side. And so that's one new responsibility he has. But then also he, in moving up in the seniority after Justice Ginsburg uh, passed away, he now speaks third. So he, right after the chief and uh, Justice Clarence Thomas, who came on in 1991, Justice Breyer is the first liberal voice the third voice of all nine around the table to try to influence the debate. And I remember back in 1994 when Harry Blackman retired and John Paul Stevens got that new role, how energized he was by it. And then in 2010, when John Paul Stevens retired, Ruth Bader Ginsburg got that authority. And both of those prior justices were able to have it for several years. 
here's Justice Stephen Breyer, who nearly set the record as a junior justice. <laughs> a 11 years, time. 11 years as a junior justice. I, you know, forget the assignment power. Just just think of, you know, who, who gets who has to talk last in the seniority and who has to open the door when there's a knock on their private conference. That was Justice Breyer for 11 years plus. Uh, and he was very happy when Justice Alito came on in January of 2006. But so, you know, he is used to being uh, second, third, fourth, fifth to many people. And for many years recently, he was second to Justice Ginsburg in the uh, seniority on the left. And that has changed. And not to throw too much information at our listeners, but that that's important. They they take seriously their assignment power. They take seriously how often they get to write opinions that speak for the court or speak for an important faction of the court. And he has gotten great satisfaction out of that role. And as you know, in the past term, not only did he um, was he in charge of assigning opinions when the left was in dissent, but Chief Justice John Roberts turned to Justice Breyer more often than he had in the past. He had him write the, uh, the Affordable Care Act decision. And Justice Breyer was crucial in uh, bringing about compromises in, in other cases too. Again, because he has this, this new seniority on the left. And I suppose one other factor, uh, this is the, the Paul Clement theory to throw into the Justice Breyer, a multi-factor balancing test of whether to stay or go. This is something that, that Paul Clement mentioned in a panel that we did in the spring. And it's not as obvious now that the justices are going to be back in person in the fall. But you know, Justice Breyer is a, is a fairly gregarious kind of person. And he may not have wanted to, to go out you know, in an all remote term, you know, to have, another, have a term where he's back uh, on the bench, uh, you know, meeting with his clerks in chambers and meeting with his with his colleagues. So, um, but I think, go ahead. Yeah, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think the, the remote uh, procedures that they've had to have has been hard on all of them. I think, you know, newest Justice Amy Coney Barrett uh, certainly has uh, not been able to, uh, you know, partake in as many of the uh, practices at the Supreme Court just because of the uh, the teleconferences and uh, the fact that many of our colleagues are, are still working from second homes. I guess the flip side of, of Breyer, you know, he talks about trying to downplay the role of politics on the court. You know, it could be harder for him to try to reach across the ideological divide next term. And this is not going to be news to him, but you know, they've already got abortion, guns, and public funding for religious schools on the docket. They could have affirmative action on the docket before they're through. You know, it, it, it could be, and we don't know how it's going to shape up in the end, it, it could be a pretty polarized term. I think that's right. And I think uh, Justice Breyer is an internal optimist. I think he actually believes that he can make a, a big difference despite the odds. And the odds are as bad as they've ever been for him. This is the first time, at least you know, since he came on the court and for many years before he came on the court, that the liberal side is down to just three justices. So you take those very polarizing subjects that you just mentioned, and you know, abortion rights right at the top of the list, and then you take the, the 
the slim hand that the liberals are holding and it's it will be quite a challenge and i think one of the greatest challenges is going to be in the abortion rights case from mississippi when it looks like they're uh, they're teeing up a case to you know remove the the test of viability for when government can can regulate a woman's choice to end a pregnancy and now i may just be asking you to play armchair psychologist um you know, do you think there's a sense of, you know, better for some, for there to be for some of these cases, someone like me who has all of this experience on the court than to have a, a new justice who may have, you know, very similar ideological sort of bona fides, but without the, the, the time and the experience building bridges on the court? I would suspect that, um, that the more senior justices believe that. I think it's it's an easy thing to believe, you know, just because they know how they each other works, they know uh, how to appeal to each other, they know where the pitfalls are in terms of relations. Uh, you know, it's a it's like any other group of nine, with uh, the many factions that break off, and not just ideologically, they break off in in different ways. And I would suspect not not saying that Justice Breyer told me this or not saying that the, the other liberals or even the any of the justices told me this, but I, I think that Justice Breyer believes that based on his experience, he still has something to contribute here uh, with some of these tougher cases. So let's switch gears a little bit. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you got, you know, your career path? You, like, like most reporters, you didn't start out covering the Supreme Court. I actually uh, did during a lot of my Washington work. I, I started as a, okay. a a government reporter. Yeah, strangely, I have been covering the Supreme Court for so long. I just keep changing publications. Um, I uh, I started as a government and politics reporter. You know, covering uh, city councils and then state houses, and then I uh, covered the congressional delegation. And then when I switched to congressional quarterly. Back in 1989, actually, I started covering the court in February of 1989, which was just a month after uh, John Roberts had his first oral argument before the justices, when John Roberts and uh, Michael Dreeben faced off in a case. So I have I have been around a long time and I've tracked um, some of my key subjects <laughs> for that time. Uh, so when I started at uh, Congressional Quarterly Weekly Report, I was... Um, I was covering the, the judiciary committees on the Hill. And then in 1992, when I was hired by the Washington Post to cover the Supreme Court, it was a bit of the continuation of the fact that I had picked up the Supreme Court as part of my Hill coverage. And I covered the um, David Souter's confirmation hearing in 1990 and Clarence Thomas's uh, confirmation hearing in 1991. And uh, that was what helped me get the job at the Washington Post in 1992. So I was, and I, I was a Supreme Court reporter there, and I was also, I, I know you're a, a, a graduate of Georgetown, right, Amy? I From am. I, we used to hear yes. about you. And when I was in law school, we'd be in, in uh, con law with Father Drynan, and he'd say, and Joe Biskupic sat right over there. <laughs> <laughs> Joe Biskupic sat right over there and nearly was falling asleep because I was going at night. And I was, you know, there's so many people we know in our elite Washington world who draw back at the idea that somebody went to night school. But I was so proud of going to night school because I had a very demanding full-time job and I had a baby. 
baby in the middle of all this, but I would go over to Georgetown at night. And frankly, it was fabulous resource development back in the old days because there were so many judiciary committee members who, uh, judiciary committee staff who were also at night school. And remember Dale Bosley, who was the uh, marshal of the Supreme Court? Yes. He was over there in the night division uh, before he got that job. So it was actually a great experience. And I ended up getting a degree on the side. So I, I have always loved covering the court. And what's changed is that now, uh, I changed when I switched over to Reuters in 2012, when I wasn't the main person on a publication covering the daily business of the court, but I could step back and do projects or analytical uh, stories. And that's what I do now for CNN, which I love because I can, I can follow what's happening day to day, but my responsibility is to add something greater, something from my background in the books or my experience over all these years, which makes the beat so much more exciting to me. So that's, that's what I've, that's sort of been the arc of my, um, my day job work. But then, as you say, on the side, uh, starting in the early 2000s, I began writing books, starting with Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, which nicely merged my interest in politics and the law because she was, uh, you know, she came to Washington knowing how to count votes from her experience as a state senator and majority leader in Arizona. And I started with her and you know the rest. Yeah, I mean, so you've written four books, and that is a lot for somebody with a full-time job, even with, you know, even with book leaves, it's still a lot, because I'm sure you were working on the books, even uh, on both sides of the book leaves. You know, you're right, and probably what, first of all, I've always had a very high energy level, and, you know, going to law school at night gets you into a mindset of your day becomes just a long day. You come home, you make dinner, you with your family, then you go up to this very crowded room of books and papers and everything else and have at it. And then you do it on weekends. And you, you, I, I actually enjoy it so much. And that's the thing I say to people when people ask about going to law school or they ask about writing a book. And I said, it, it will always be hanging over your head. So you really have to love doing it. And I felt that way about law school, Amy. And uh, that was the luxury of doing it at night. I kept saying to myself, if at any point it becomes too hard, you have a full-time job. You have a very good full-time job. You can, you can always quit, but I didn't. And coincidentally, when I took the bar, <laughs> this somehow seems fitting. When I took the bar, it was in 1994 and I was also covering Breyer's hearings. So there was like, there's been this weird thing of, you know, Justice Stephen Breyer hovering, and, and, you know, having to learn all about him all along at these various stages, uh, even while I was, you know, either doing books or, or even law school on the side. Do you feel like your approach to writing biographies has changed over time, you know, between O'Connor and Roberts? I mean, obviously they're very different people who've had very different careers. So maybe your approach has changed yeah, because your subject a, has changed. Right. That's a good question. I remember when I first, um, delved into Justice O'Connor's life. And I spent a lot of time out in her legislative files in Arizona and a lot of time down in the Powell, uh, Lewis Powell archive down at Washington and Lee because she and Justice Powell were such good friends. And she had written up all sorts of wonderful correspondence that helped me see into her life. And obviously I spent time in Arizona and went out to the ranch. So I was very much focused on how Sandra Day O'Connor became Sandra Day O'Connor. 
And at that point, I wasn't, you know, I obviously was writing about what she was like as a justice and I had access to lots of uh, papers to, to understand that. But I wasn't as concerned then about sort of what the current dynamic on the court was. And that changed, and that has changed. I'm more, now as, I, as I'm working on these books and as I worked on the, the Chief's book, I was also trying to add something for readers about the behind the scenes dynamic that would inform the current court. And I think that, I think I first got a taste of that when I was doing the book on Justice Sotomayor. The, the, the book I wrote about Justice Sotomayor, which followed the Antonin Scalia book, was not a biography like the O'Connor and Scalia books were. Right. It was much more of a political history. But because while I was doing that, I, I got some inside information about some, you know, some events at the court and switched votes. For example, what happened uh, behind the scenes when they, the justices first took up the University of Texas at Austin case that had been brought by Abigail Fisher, the affirmative action case. That kind of gave me a taste for finding out more of what was happening behind the scenes. So I, I found that I was pivoting a little bit to try to get more up-to-date information of what was happening, even though I was looking back at people's lives. And that's why when I did the chief, the book on the chief, it was a real pleasure to go to Johnstown, Pennsylvania, where his parents uh, had met and grown up and you know go through the library there to study sort of the ethnic history of his family. Uh, but it was also quite challenging to find out, for example, what had really happened in the first Affordable Care Act case where he, you know, we had known that he had uh, changed his vote on the individual insurance mandate because of the reporting Jan Crawford had done. But I found out along the way that he'd also switched his vote on the Medicaid portion. And I, I became interested in that and wanting to pull that out of uh, uh, various sources at the court. And that has become uh, a nice challenge to have. And that sort of um, subtext of, of my reporting is not, you know, it's not the main thing that I want people to take from these books because I want them to be, you know, character studies, but it's been a, a nice little bonus and it, it's helped bring uh, more attention to the reporting because people, people hardly know anything about what's going on behind the scenes. The court carefully guards a lot of this and, um, it's been, uh, I've, I've felt fortunate that I've been able to find out some things. Yes, well, it has definitely been a bonus. So we've, we've certainly enjoyed it. <laughs> Do you have anything new uh, in the works that you can talk about or any plans? Um, I am working on uh, another book. It's a long range, it's a long way off, long range project. Uh, it's more of a group portrait this time of the court um, during the Trump years and then the pivot into the Biden administration. and. And looking at essentially the, the Trump effect on the court, not just in the his appointment of three justices, you know, super significant just that, but also um, the Trump administration's arguments before the court, how are they were received by the court, the pressures uh, that the individual justices experienced because of um, the Trump administration, and but then looking ahead also, not just not just. Trump-centric here, but looking ahead, looking also at um, how the court uh, responded when the Biden administration came in. So it's it's a little bit more uh, of a wider lens and looking, but still looking at relationships among the justices and just how the law changed 
because of the Trump administration and what's happening now with the Biden administration. One last question, uh, looking ahead on the sort of nearer term horizon, we've talked about some of the cases on the docket for the upcoming term, abortion, public funding for religious schools, guns, uh, anything else you're watching or sort of any themes you're looking at in the upcoming term? Yeah, I would say one of the most important things I'm wondering about is our newest justice, uh, Amy Coney Barrett. You know, we saw her a lot nonstop during the confirmation hearing, but then that was it. And, you know, we haven't uh, seen her in any public setting to give a speech or, uh, you, know, the, you know, be at a conference the way we normally would see justices when we're not in the, the COVID time. And uh, she wrote so little last term. I think her uh, her concurring opinion in the uh, Fulton uh, case, the the uh, Catholic Social Services uh, foster parent case was was uh, was important was a clue to some of her thinking. Uh, maybe a little bit of her go slower approach compared to some of her brethren on the on the right. Uh, but but overall, she she did not give us that much to fully understand her. And and that's perfectly normal in some ways because uh, you know she's got you know maybe three decades uh, ahead of her on the court. So uh, I'm I'm looking for many more data points on her on um, Justice Barrett, and and also how she's going to be compared to the other two Trump appointees. Now Justice Neil Gorsuch gave us a lot right away. You know back in 2017 he wrote you know several concurrences. He he. Uh, speaking publicly in 2017, he's he's always been out there in many ways. He uh, he immediately started writing a book. Now apparently she has immediately started writing a book, uh, but we don't know for sure because she has not said anything herself about this reported two million dollar contract that she's gotten to write a book. You know that's that's what's been reported by Politico, but we don't know. So that's another thing. What what is she doing on the side? Uh, with her very full life that she already has. So I would be looking at her. And I guess of all the cases you, you mentioned, Amy, the one that I think is going to be most challenging uh, will be the abortion rights case and just what they've, what they've set themselves up for here. Uh, so that, and then finally, one other small thing, only because I've, I've covered the Harvard, or, uh, the Harvard Affirmative Action case since the day it was filed back in November, 2014. I went up to Boston and covered the trial. Uh, I'm very much interested in that case. So I'm curious about how the Biden administration uh, makes its recommendation to the justices about probably not taking the case and then to see what the justices themselves do with, you know, a major, major case that uh, will put um, uh, affirmative action and Baki and Grutter uh, in the crosshairs. So much to uh, look forward to. And hopefully we will all be in the courtroom to see it unfold. Joan Biskupic, thanks so much for joining so us. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you, Amy. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. And thanks to our production team, Katie Barlow, Angie Goh, and James Ramoser.